King Sunday. As Christians throughout the, throughout the world and uh, the Christian year, the, today is the last Sunday before the Sunday or before the season of Advent. And so we, as a church, celebrate the reality that Jesus Christ is risen, that he has ascended to God's right hand, and that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. The interesting thing for this, though, as I was um, reading this week in N.T. Wright's book, How God Became King, I was, he had this great question. He said, when you think of Jesus risen into heaven or ascended into heaven, sitting at God's right hand, how do you imagine him? And more pointedly, do you imagine him more active in this world or less? How do you guys imagine it? If you're anything like me, my first thought is one that uh, God has gone away to heaven and that he's sitting on a, on a throne. And for me, that seems, I don't know if maybe you were feeling the same thing, that almost feels like he's more distant from us. Almost like he's, um, and he's just sitting on a throne. And I had this image, and, it, and I, honestly, it didn't feel very much like God is king and ruling over the world. And that was exactly N.T. Wright's point. That sometimes, as Christians, we think, oh, Jesus is risen and he has ascended into, God, into heaven, and we praise and we, we, we um, praise God for that, and we're excited about that. But we can't help but almost have the sense that he's sort of gone away from us, that he's less, somehow maybe less involved in the world. And he pointed out that in the ancient world, It was actually when a king sat on his throne that the earnest work of ruling began. A king was a king, but when he sat on the throne, that's when the ruling started. That's when the kingdom was beginning to work, when the king was beginning to influence the kingdom. And it helped me to realize that when I hear that Jesus is ascended, that he sits at God's right hand, that he is king of kings and lord of lords, I see that on the throne... On God's throne, Jesus is ruling over this world. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The thing is, and I don't know if any of you are sensing this, but the thing is, that's easy enough for us to say, but it's harder to see. I mean, think about the world around us. You only need to watch the news for a little bit, and you start hearing of wars, of genocides, of catastrophes in third world countries that just wipe out thousands, tens of thousands of people. You hear of people being trafficked as sexual slaves. You hear the local news about violence, about abuse, about people mistreating each other. And it's not, I wouldn't blame you if you started questioning or wondering, if this is the kingdom, what sort of king are we talking about? Does anybody wonder that? Like as we affirm that Christ, as we proclaim that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he rules over all of creation, and yet we look at how broken creation is, does anybody wonder at that? Does anybody ache in their bones, God, how do I hold those two together? How do I make sense of the fact that you are king and I look at how broken the world is around us? Well, this is a big question. I'm sorry I'm not going to answer this one totally for you today. I would love to. But I think I can help. Or I think actually more that the scriptures, the word of God can help. That's what I love about the word of God. It's immediately relevant to our lives right now. I know it was written over 2,000 years ago. Some of it even longer than that. But it's immediately relevant. has application, has meaning for us right now, today, in our world. 
to understand that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, but not like we expected. But to understand this, we need to go back and we need to look at where this idea of king began. And, and it began in earnest with one of God's great kings, arguably one of his greatest kings of the Old Testament, is King David. That God had made this great promise of a great king who would bring his great kingdom to his servant David, who was king over Israel. Now, for those of you maybe who are a little rusty on who King David is, or maybe this is the first time you've heard of King David, he was uh, one of the great kings of Israel, but he didn't start that way. He was the youngest of eight sons. He was a shepherd. And it's funny, God makes this joke when he's talking with, uh, with David. We'll see it in the text. Where he says, you used to chase sheep, but I am making you the leader of my people. How uh, David came from this lowly beginning. And it wasn't until the prophet Samuel came God had led him to this family just outside of Jerusalem, this little town called Bethlehem. And he'd come to David, actually to to Jesse, to David's father, and he said, God is telling me that the new king is from this family. And so Jesse brings his sons to him one at a time, and and God says to Samuel, not him, not him. And then he brings this little boy, he brings this boy out of the field who's been shepherding sheep, and he said, God says, this is the one. And Samuel anointed him, and God's power, her spirit, came on him in power. So from there on, David begins to grow as this hero and as this great king. Has anybody heard the phrase, David and Goliath? Anybody heard that phrase? Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase. Yeah. So most people have heard that. Do you realize that it's talking about this king? One of the famous stories of David is that he actually uh, defeated Goliath, the, the enemy's army, their giant champion. David, this boy with a stone and a sling, slew the giant. And all of Israel cheered and they won that battle. And from there, his fame grew and grew until he became king. Now, it was rocky and there's lots of story there. Read uh, 2 Samuel. Go read that story if you want the the backstory there. But it talks about how God took David and led him from this lowly shepherd boy to be king over his people. And there's lots to talk about here in this this passage we're going to get to in just a second. But that's where we end up right now. This is the point of the story where we're at. So if you can, look in your bulletins. There's a sheet here. And it says 2 Samuel 7, 1-17. So we're just going to read the first two paragraphs. It says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do, for the Lord is with you. So let me just explain what's happening here. So David, uh, God has done amazing things and blessed David, and he has this palace of cedar, which is sort of like saying this amazing palace. I mean, I know we have lots of cedar around us, but it wasn't so common where David lived. He has this amazing palace, and yet God's ark lives in a tent. So Peter, or sorry, I keep saying Peter, so David wants to to honor God because God has honored him. He says, if I have this amazing palace because God has honored me, I want to honor God. I want to build a house for the Lord, a temple. But listen to the next part. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord said. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? 
I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and rest for your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. There is tons to unpack here. Does anybody have about an hour for us to talk about it? There's lots to talk about. But the part that I wanted to focus on in keeping with this series that we've been working through is to make the connections with this promise that's made to David and its connections with Abraham. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the promises that God had made with Abraham, the covenant that he had made with him, that Abraham would be a blessing to bless the nations. That God promised Abraham, who was 99 years old, and him and his wife Sarah were unable to have children, that he would have more children than the stars of the sky. That God promised him that he would have a land, a home to dwell in. He promised him that, that not only would he be blessed, but nations would be blessed by him, that nations would be brought back to God through Abraham and through his people. He promised Abraham that he would have nations and kings that would come from his family. At the very end, God promises Abraham that his descendants, that they would be his people and that God would be their God. This amazing promise of God that I will be their God. And in all this, he promised Olam forever. That God promised this forever. And we start hearing some of these same things coming up in this promise to David this king who, who wanted to build a house for God. And God says, no, actually, I'm going to build a house for you. God promised to David that one, that he would have descendants who would become kings, but also one who would become a great king. But not only that, because of his kingship, that his people would have a land, a home to dwell in where they would not be harassed anymore. He promised that, they would, that, uh, that David, that his descendants would, would be a king over all the nations that by this king, God would bring nations back to himself. He would be a king of justice and righteousness. That God would be their God and that they would be his people. It's this amazing story. Are you seeing some of the parallels here? The parallels between the promise of Abraham and the promise to David. That God promised all these things to David, Olam, forever. What I want us to see here is that this promise to David is not just 
another one of God's promises in the Bible. It's building on the promises that God has been making to his people for the sake of the nations. That God began with Genesis. If you remember that story, we talked about it a few weeks ago, that God created us in his image. That we have value as people. That we're not just cells and and oxygen-breathing organisms. That we actually have value because we are created in God's image. But also that this idea of being created in God's image includes with it a sense of vocation, that we've been called to cultivate God's kingdom, to, to be stewards over his creation, to rule and subdue, to be like vice kings who, who are stewards over what God has created. And how all of that went horribly wrong when humanity, when Adam and Eve, representatives of humanity, when they rebelled against God, when they did the one thing that God told them not to do. And everything went horribly wrong. Now, that could have been the end of the story. Sometimes I think we take that for granted. That could have been the end of the story. God could have said, you know, I tried, you blew it, sorry. But that's not the God that we serve. That's not what God is like. And so he began again, this time working through one family, through Abraham. He began talking with Abraham and he made promises to him that that he would have a, a land and that he would have descendants, and kings and nations would come from him, and that he would bless Abraham and his descendants, so they would be a blessing to all the nations forever. And we saw how that was taken up and built on at Sinai, after God had brought his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And he brought them to this mountain, and he made a promise to them, that I will be your God and you will be my people, and here's how I want you to live. To live this way, so that you will have a right relationship with me, but also so that you will demonstrate to the rest of the world what it looks like to be the people of God. That you would bring the nations in. God has this desire for a healthy relationship with his people and that they would have a missional relationship with the rest of the world. God is healthy and missional. But also, we see it now coming right here to David. This promise being fulfilled. This promise being collected up, the one to Abraham and the one at Mount Sinai to the people, being gathered up here again with David. And all this pointing to Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the King of Kings. The great King that God is promising here. So I'm hoping that you're seeing that in one sense this moment where God makes this promise to David looks back to the promises before, but it's also looking forward. It's looking forward to a great king. Now, many of you know this, but David had a son. In a pretty complicated situation, but he had a son named Solomon who became king after him. Solomon was a great king, known for his wisdom. The, the, the whole nation of Israel grew under his leadership. But after he died, his family split the kingdom apart. That as much as, as Solomon was the one who was a great king and who even built a temple, an amazing temple to the Lord, sort of partially filled out this promise that God had made, it all went wrong after he died. Until eventually the northern kingdom, the northern half, was taken by Assyria. And then a few hundred years later, the southern kingdom was taken into exile into Babylon. It didn't work out. It didn't seem to line up with God's promises. And so the people of, of Israel, they began to understand that God was talking about a greater king. And they began to look forward to this greater king. We see it in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
on those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. He has enlarged the nation. He has increased their joy. The people rejoice in front of him. Like, like people at the harvest. Like men who divide the plunder. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke of bondage, or the shattered the yoke of burdens. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. The boots that have been used in, in battle, the warrior's boots. And the garments that have been rolled in blood, they are destined for burning. They will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child has been born. A son has been given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And we will call him Mighty, our Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government... And the fullness of his peace will know no end. And get this, he will reign on David's throne. He will rule over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it in justice and righteousness. God's idea of justice and righteousness. From that day on and forever. There's that word again, olam, forever. Isaiah is saying, It didn't happen with Solomon. It didn't happen with Solomon's descendants. We are looking forward to a greater king who will come from David's family. Are you with me here? This promise gathers up the past and it looks forward. It looks forward to Jesus. Jesus is this great king. Jesus is this great king who has done the things that God promised would happen. He is the great king who is going to bring God's great kingdom. It's no surprise to me, actually it makes more sense to me now when I look at Matthew's gospel and the first thing that Matthew says, says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Making that connection. For example, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the city of David. He is a descendant of David. Literally, he comes from his body. But let's look at this text more to see places how Jesus fulfills this. The first one is that Jesus, he rules forever. His kingdom will last forever. Look with me at verse 13. You can find it there. It's kind of at the bottom. God, making this promise, said, He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The people were looking for a king, but their idea of a king was more like a military general who was going to come and take the world by force, by storm, who's going to come and beat all the people down and finally then, by authority and power, rule. But God's king came differently. He came like a child being born into a manger. God the Son being born into a stable in Bethlehem. Can you imagine that? Or think about when Jesus came into Jerusalem and they were realizing the connection with Scripture and they said, look, here comes your king, humble and lowly, riding on a donkey. Not on a white stallion with slaves behind him, but holy, but humble and lowly on a donkey. Jesus didn't come with a sword and a spear to put down nations of people and to beat them and and to win this this battle by uh, violence. He came proclaiming gospel. 
a good news. And a good news, not just that we'll be saved by our sin and that we'll go to heaven when we die. It's bigger than that. The gospel of His kingdom, of God's kingdom, that includes God's idea of justice and righteousness. It's bigger than just me and my salvation, but includes our community around us and communities around the world. When Jesus came, He proclaimed the gospel in Mark. It talks about Jesus came proclaiming the gospel. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe into the good news. Jesus came proclaiming a kingdom. And then, imagine this. God lived among us. He was crucified. He died and He rose again and He ascended to God's right hand and He lives there forever. The first fruits of the new creation that will not end. He sits on the throne of the King forever. His kingdom is a kingdom that will not perish that will not pass away. He is indeed the King who rules forever. That's the first thing I wanted to point out. He rules the King and He rules forever. The second thing I wanted to show us, if you look there, it's right there at verse 13 again. He said, if you look out there with me, He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now the people expected that this King was going to build an amazing temple out of stone and marble and gold. Jesus came not building a temple out of stone, but out of saints. Out of believers. That they are this holy temple. First, our Peter talks about in one of his first letters. He says, you are living stones, being built up into a spiritual household, royal priests, Jesus came to build a house for God, but He came to build it out of His people, out of you. You are the living stones. You are this house that this great King will build. The other thing that I realized too, how Jesus fulfilled this, look at me with chapter, uh, verse 14. You find it there? That I will be His Father, and He will be my Son. That Jesus is the Son of God in ways that we could barely even imagine, more literally than we could ever understand. You see, in the ancient world, kings would claim for themselves that they were sons of God. Do you know that Julius Caesar claimed that he was a son of God as a way to establish or to legitimize his kingdom, as a way to, to make sure that people worshipped him? Jesus didn't have to do that. People recognized it in him, that he is God's son conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. And He ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, God's Son. And I know in the Creed, it goes directly from... from, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's almost like they missed the whole gospel in between there. There's some important parts. For example, when Jesus was baptized, He went down in the water and He came up a new person, kind of like some of you did today. And when He came up, the Spirit of God descended on Him like a dove. And God's voice boomed. He said, This is My Son, whom I love. In Him I am so pleased. 
These same words that God spoke again when Jesus was on the mountain and transfigured. My Son, whom I love, in Him I am so pleased. And how God's Word draw up the, psalm, uh, the second psalm, the psalm that people used to sing when they would crown a new king, Psalm 2. When God says, Today you become my Son and I have become your Father. Jesus is God's Son in ways that we could never imagine, in unexpected ways. The last thing I wanted to show you. The last thing. If you look at verse 12, it's right at the top of the, of the paragraph. And verse 12 says, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. The early church, when they heard raise up, they recognized the cross. It's true, people who didn't see it, they didn't catch it, they were expecting they were going to raise up a king like a champion on their shoulders. Like a great king on a throne will raise him up. They didn't understand that God was going to raise up his king on a cross. And it was the first apostles, the first followers of Jesus who began to realize this. They realized that on the cross, Jesus made, us, made things right between us and God. That he defeated sin and death and Satan and evil that God has victory on the cross, but he also realized, or they also realized, that God installed his king on the cross. Think about the words that we hear leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. The Roman soldiers mocking Jesus, saying more than they realized when they said, Hail the king of the Jews. Or what about the sign that Pontius Pilate wrote that, that the Jewish people begged him to take down? And he says, What I have written, I have written. The sign they hung on the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin so the whole known world could hear it. Proclaiming it to the whole Roman Empire that Jesus is King. And for those of you who've read that that chapter a few times or read the story of Christ's crucifixion a few times, you see the places where it refers to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They cast lots for his clothes. All references to Psalm 22. This psalm that ends in the climax of God's king ruling over the nation's injustice and righteousness. God's king has been raised up on the cross. But not like we expected. Jesus is this great king, but not like we expected. Jesus is the son of God, but not like we expected. Jesus is the one who will build God's house, but not like we expected. Jesus is the one who will, who will establish his kingdom forever, but not like we expected. There's so much more that I want to say here, but I'm running out of time. But I hope you're beginning to see. You're beginning to see Jesus, maybe in a new way, or maybe in a way that you've always known. But I hope you're seeing that Jesus is the great king. That he is the great king who is bringing God's kingdom. As I mentioned earlier, today is Christ the King Sunday. When we, as the Christian church, as followers of Jesus, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That despite the world around us, despite the appearance of things on the surface, we proclaim it in faith that Jesus is Lord. That he has begun his kingdom by his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. His kingdom has entered into human history. And we wait for his kingdom to come fully when he returns. We proclaim this in faith. And we hope. We hope 
for his return. We hope for that day when he will come and make things right and good. We stand on tiptoe, watching, waiting for our king to come. I know this is a lot to bring in. I feel like we've taken 20 minutes to burn through something that takes the whole Bible to develop, to work out and to explain. So if you're wondering, okay, Jason, thanks for this. I want you to go back and look and and read. Great. But if you're looking for one thing, one thing I can begin with this morning, I want you to begin with this. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Some of you might be thinking, oh, come on, like that's it? Pray the Lord's Prayer? Yes. Pray the Lord's Prayer. This is a kingdom prayer. A prayer that, that Jesus taught his people to pray, not just for our sake, but for the sake of his kingdom. One of my professors, Daryl Johnson, who taught me to preach, he's been a pastor longer than I've been alive, wrote a book, said 57 words that changed the world. He's talking about the Lord's Prayer. And I think he would agree that it's 57 words that will change the world. And so that's one thing. If you're looking for one thing this week, okay, Jason, how do I take this home and make, make this alive in my life? Pray the Lord's Prayer. And I don't mean just recite it. You know how sometimes people do in church? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Pray this prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Please, God, pray this prayer. I'm excited as I begin to think about you, about us praying this prayer this week. Each day, just setting aside the moment to pray this prayer. Or the hours, however much you need. To pray this prayer. I can't wait to see how God will begin tipping dominoes in your life because of this. How God will begin changing things in your life because of this. Because of us praying this prayer. Or how God will use us praying this prayer to tip dominoes in the world around us and bring and cultivate His kingdom here. I want to preach good news to you this morning. Today is Christ the King Sunday. Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Amen. Even if we didn't understand it or expect it. Amen. Now normally we have a time of questions and maybe some of you have them. We're running a little bit over time, sorry. But if you want to, I'm going to be sitting right here. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to hear what you hear God saying and to encourage you. If you want to, it's in Matthew chapter 6. Or if you want to, I put it in your bulletin. Trying to make this as easy as possible, guys. The prayer is right there in the sermon series, or in the the sermon sheet, right at the bottom. Just take it home and pray it. All right. Okay. Um... I know you guys have song, right? If you guys would, please rise for the blessing. If you've heard something this morning, if God's Spirit is moving and you is saying something, you want to come talk or have a prayer about it, come, I'll be sitting right here next to all the boxes. I want to pray with you and encourage you. But now, receive the Lord's blessing. Bless you as you go out this week in this amazing news that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Maybe unlike we ever expected it, but he is Lord. Bless you as you go out in this amazing news. Amen. Amen. So there's, there's cake, there's celebration.